for Good Morning Word of Life. How are we doing? Is everyone doing okay? You glad you made it to church this morning? Everyone online, welcome. So glad you guys are able to come uh, hang out with us and be a part of service um, this point in the weekend. But uh, I hadn't planned on doing this, but um, you know, having been a part of worship um, along with everyone else and um, hearing what Pastor Randy had to say, if everyone's okay, do you mind if you stand with me? And we're going to pray as we get into the Word today. Um, and anyone at home, uh, whether you want to stand or stay seated, however you do, but I just want to ask you to posture yourself and prepare yourself to pray, um, putting just Distractions to one side as we believe that something special is going to happen. And so, Lord, we're here right now. And Lord, I'm under no illusion that I have power to change people's lives, but Lord, I truly believe you do. Lord, I believe that you are incredible. I believe that you are who you say you are. Lord, I believe in the middle of hurt and pain and fear and frustration and anger and pressure and stress, you are still good that you're able to carry us through life seasons. The deepest hurt, the biggest disappointments. Lord, I believe that you are still God, you are still good. There is no other. And so Lord, for every single person here, whether in person, online, listen to this after the fact this week, whatever the case may be, Lord, I believe Lord, I believe that you're going to reach into people's lives right now. You're going to bring healing. You're going to bring wholeness. You're going to bring hope. So I invite everybody here, Lord, that there will be open hearts. There will be open ears. That whatever Tom Wood would have to say this morning would fade to the background, but what you have to say would go deep in people's hearts. We would go deep in their minds and draw us closer to you. In Jesus' incredible name. Amen, amen. Thank you, everybody. I appreciate it. You guys can go ahead, grab a seat. Those of you at home, get comfortable. I'm so glad you're able to come hang out at church with us today. Um, any chance I have to come and share a word with you is always an honor, and I, I truly love being able to do so. I'm so glad that I'm able to come and continue something we started last week as we look uh, at Isaiah 53, um, and I made the joke that uh, the best thing about Isaiah 53 is that it actually starts in Isaiah 52, and people that are very particular, um, I may or may not live with one that I love very much and have promised to love for the rest of my life, um, she may be of that persuasion but I was told very firmly on the way home last week that it's inappropriate for me to make jokes about her as part of a message, and so I unequivocally apologize, and I will never do so again. Did I say it right? Okay. But the book of Isaiah uh, as a whole is mentioned, uh, it's an Old Testament book, uh, but it is mentioned in the New Testament more than any other book in the Old Testament. And particularly the passage that we're going to spend some time in over the next number of weeks uh, is mentioned more times than any other passage in the, uh, in the Old Testament into the New Testament. And so one book that I read uh, said, and they estimated that the passage of Isaiah 53 is mentioned 34 times. Uh, it's either directly quoted or it's alluded to 34 times in the New Testament. So this is clearly a significant uh, passage that the New Testament authors would point to to help bring understanding of who Jesus is, what he accomplished on the cross. And for us as New Testament believers, we spent some time last week looking about how Isaiah 53 points towards the cross, the crucifixion, Jesus in incredible detail. So it is appropriate, it is right, it is reasonable that we live our life confident that God does have a plan, that he is able, he is making a way, because seven 
700 years before Jesus went to the cross, God laid out an incredible detail through the prophet Isaiah of how the crucifixion was going to look. So that was last week. If you didn't have a chance to be a part of church last week, that's kind of the, in the nutshell about what we covered is that the crucifixion, it was foretold, it was prophesied, it was declared by the prophet Isaiah 700 years before it would happen in, in surprisingly accurate detail. And that that confidence that can give to believers that the Lord is in control. He is working a plan. That is, if he is able to fulfill his promises and he's able to fulfill his word on the cross through Jesus, that should bring an incredible confidence to us. And so this week, uh, if I'm being honest and I'm mapping out the different uh, themes that we're going to cover as we look at Isaiah 53, today's message could have been week one, but I felt that last week it's so obvious to look at the different ways it talks about the crucifixion. I thought, let's just get the elephant in the room out there and let's look at the crucifixion. But what I wanted to look at today is just to look at the verse and look at what it has to say about the promises of God. The promises of God. And a helpful way to think about the promises of God is that they address problems. The promises of God, they address problems. When there's a problem, the Lord brings a solution to that problem. He makes a promise regarding that problem. And then a life of faith is seeing that promise unfold in your life. And consequently, the problems are getting addressed. I have a very good friend of mine. I met him when I lived in Australia, uh, and he became a very close friend of mine. Uh, I mean, you know, he was at my wedding, my bachelor party, and all that stuff. We became real close. And then when we moved to New York City, coincidentally, he moved to New York City right at the same time. So we were in church together in Australia, and then we were able to be church together in New York. Close, close friend. But a fascinating conversation with him, and he was talking about, in churches, the hardest people to reach. And he said that if you have people that, uh, you know, I mean, they're, they're down on their luck, life has been tough, they're up against all kinds of challenges, there's financial uh, problems going on, they're stuck into addictions, there's crisis, there's chaos, there's dysfunction. He's like, oftentimes people in those situations are just looking for someone to bring a message of hope. And the message of Jesus is, of course, a message of hope. And so people that are desperate, when they hear a message of hope, there's often a strong response. And then the other side of the spectrum, you have people that are, you know, perhaps extremely wealthy extremely successful in careers, but their family is in ruins. Their relationships are absolutely in the gutter. That they, they still may be locked into an addiction or a drug addiction or something significant, and they may have made a decision that is ruining their life, but still you find desperation among extremely wealthy and successful people. But what my friend pointed out, and it stuck with me, and this was years ago, was that there's a, a section of people in the middle that he labeled the happy heathens. The happy heathens, and these would be folks, and I'm sure that you have some friends that may fall into this category, that you, know, you would identify with this, but these are people who don't have enormous financial stress. These are folks that they don't have any big health problems in the family, that their relationships are okay, they're, they're generally a happy family, there's, there's no major disruptions in their lives, they're generally happy, well-to-do people, things are just going okay for them. And oftentimes those people are the hardest to reach because we don't have problems to point at and say, that is why you need Jesus, it's the happy heathens. Life is just going okay, and so this need for bringing the gospel is somewhat not as obvious as it is for everybody. Now, I will say it is just as applicable, and no matter how well-to-do things look, no matter how okay everything is going, everybody needs Jesus. I have no doubt about that at all, and I think that is clearly the Christian message. But if people are evaluating their own lives, things are going okay, everyone's healthy, there's money in the bank, the career's going the way it's supposed to be going, there's no major crisis, I wonder sometimes if these really are the hardest people to reach, as my friends say, is these happy heathens. 
I wrote this down, and perhaps it's helpful for you. I certainly found it interesting as I was thinking and praying about this this week. But I wrote down, if we don't see a problem, we don't look for a promise. If we don't see a problem, we don't look for a promise. Now, Isaiah, at the time that he was writing, I think it's fair to say that this is Israel at the absolute lowest. And after hundreds of years of abandoning God, ignoring the warnings that God would send through the prophets, um, the whole nation is about to suffer terribly um, through war and destruction. So this is being written to a desperate people that are desperately hoping for God to show up. The book of Isaiah was not written to the happy heathens. The book of Isaiah was written to people that are desperate for God to come through, for God to show himself faithful and true to his promises. And so even though in the book of Isaiah, and I'll be honest with you, it's not an easy read. Um, It's 66 chapters long, and there are times when those chapters seem really long. It is not necessarily an easy read, but a lot of the book is, is, you know, incredible judgments and this call for justice and the consequences of the sin of the people. But throughout the book, there is woven hope and promise and the declaration, it won't always be like this. Turn back to me. It doesn't have to be that way. Woven throughout the book is that, no, come on, it doesn't have to be like this. When you are at your lowest, you don't have to stay here. And so Isaiah 53, the passage that we're going to be looking at, it's the fourth of four songs. And if you look it up, uh, it, it, they're known as the servant songs. And so there's four of them. Um, and so this one is the fourth And they essentially, in lots of ways, they build upon each other. So I'm not going to read the other three today, but just for the purpose of summary, because they do build on each other. Uh, Isaiah 42, the servant song that you find there, talks a lot about justice. When the Messiah comes, as we learned last week, there's no doubt in anyone's mind that what Isaiah is talking about, what he's prophesying, what God's saying through him, is that when Jesus comes, he's going to set things right. Isaiah 49, the next song, talks about uh, this is fulfilling the promises of God, not just for the Hebrews, not just for the nation of Israel, but for the whole world. And I, for one, am very grateful that that has come true. Isaiah 50, that the only one who could teach a better way is the Messiah. So when the Messiah comes, and by the time we get to Isaiah 53, there's already been this expectation, there's already been these promises declared that when Jesus comes, he is going to set things right. And that is not just for one nation, which is so much of the Old Testament is addressing, is that this nation is going to be blessed in a unique way. But instead, that blessing is going to spread to all the nations of the world as they can come into a right relationship with God. And that the Messiah is the only one who is qualified and able to teach us a better way. And then we get to Isaiah 53, starting in chapter 52. Just for Megan. We're going to turn there now. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn with me to Isaiah 52, and we're going to read 52 and then all of 53. If you don't have your Bible, you can follow along on the screens. I'm going to read the whole passage. It's not short. And I, I want you to just sort of follow along with me, and I want you to just kind of get the inference of what Isaiah is saying. Obviously, we're not going to have a chance to go through every single piece. That's why we spread this over a few weeks. But as we go through this chapter, and as we go through this really important verse that has influenced the New Testament writers more than any other passage, just look for what leaps out at you. And there's a ton in this. So chapter 52, starting in verse 13, see my servant will prosper. He'll be highly exalted, but many were amazed when they saw him. His face was so disfigured, he seemed hardly human. 
And from his appearance, one would scarcely know he was a man. And he will startle many nations. Kings will stand speechless in his presence, for they will see what they had not been told. They will understand what they had not heard about. Who has believed our message? To whom has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? My servant grew up in the Lord's presence, like a dry root in the dry ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's path to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short in midstream. But he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong and had never deceived anyone. But he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave, but it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. Yet when his life was, is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. He will enjoy a good life, and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous, for he will bear all their sins. I will give him the honors of a victorious soldier because he exposed himself to death. He was counted among the rebels. He bore the sins of many and interceded for rebels. Incredible passage of scripture. It's rich, it's dense. It's filled with so many things. There may even be some verses there that leap out at you as familiar verses that you may have heard spoken about a number of times. But remember what we're thinking about today and what we're weighing up is that if we don't see a problem, we don't look for a promise. And it's important, I think, as we look at this passage and as we spend some time, it's worth looking at what are the problems that we are told the Messiah is going to fix. And we're going to look at one portion in just a moment, but keeping in mind what we heard last week and what we considered last week is that Jesus came. There's no doubt he came. And 700 years before he came, Isaiah is writing down here. These are the problems that Jesus came to fix. And 53, if we looked at it as a song or as a poem, there are five verses or five stanzas. And we're going to take a moment and we're going to look again at the middle verse or the middle stanza. And we're going to see about what promises are made that when the Messiah comes, these are the problems he's going to fix. These are the problems. So going back again to verse 4, yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. We thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins, but he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. Weakness, sorrows, rebellion, sins, the need to be whole, the need to be healed. 
Now, if somebody didn't believe that these were problems that they have in their life, I don't think it's crazy to see that they're not looking for the solution anywhere. They're not looking for a problem. They're not looking for a promise to address these problems. But if you can look at your life and in a moment of honesty and you can think, you know what? Yes, I I know what it's like to feel weak. I know what it's like to experience sorrow and the weight of life on my shoulders. I know what it's like to, to know that my rebellion and my sinfulness has caused a distance and a broken relationship between me and God. I need to feel whole. I need healing. Those are the problems from the book of Isaiah. This is what Jesus came to fix. This is the promise that when the Messiah comes, he is going to fix all of this. And the book of Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, there's a very well-known verse where there's a song that's sung about it. It's very well known that all the promises of God in Christ Jesus are yes and amen. All the promises of God. If you scour and you search the Old Testament and you find a promise of God in Jesus, that promise is fulfilled. And as we look at these problems, we look at what it is that Isaiah said, these are the problems he's coming to fix. I hope that it does something in you. It just causes you to have a greater appreciation and a greater love for who Jesus is and what he's going to do. And as a helpful reminder that Jesus came 2,000 years ago and he started and he initiated a kingdom. And he promised that when I return, this kingdom is going to come in its fullness and in its completeness. And as we look at these problems that he's come to fix, the prayer that he taught us to pray that on earth, as it is in heaven, Lord, we want to see the reality that we're facing today, the way that we are affected by these problems. I want to see heaven come and heaven take shape in my life. Because in heaven, when he comes in his fullness and we step into an eternity with him, and he comes in his fullness, There's not going to be any of these problems anymore. There is not going to be brokenness. There is not going to be a need for supernatural healing. There is not going to be sin. There's not going to be rebellion. There's not going to be distance between God and his people. And our prayer is that on earth as it is in heaven. But I want to go through those problems that we read from Isaiah. And I want to take, uh, really sort of group them together into three if that's okay. But the first problem that we see that Jesus came to fix is rebellion and sin. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sin. Now, it's helpful to take a few minutes and just go all the way back to the book of Genesis. And Genesis, a helpful way to think about this book, it's the very first book of the Bible, is that it was written uh, by Moses. Moses put the book together. And the stories that are in the book of Genesis, there's good reason to believe, and it's a helpful thing to uh, approach to have to the book, is that these are the stories that the Hebrews would tell each other at night over a campfire. And they would share the stories of their heritage and the stories of the promises that God made to their ancestors and the way that God interacted and made covenants and agreements and incredible ways that God moved in the lives of their ancestors and the creation narrative. It's helpful to think of it because this is the way that they would find meaning and understanding of the situation they found themselves in. In Egypt, the Hebrews were slaves. They had been for hundreds of years. No sign of it ending. No sign of a breakthrough. No sign of relief. And they would get together and they would tell the stories of Noah and Abraham and Jacob. And through these stories, they would find explanation of why is the world this way? Why why is life this way? 
People that are enslaved, people that are at the lowest of the low, people that have got no justice in their life at all, they would share the stories of Genesis with each other by way of understanding, this is how it is right now. This is why life is messed up. This is why life is unfair. But we are a people of promise. Amen. We are a people of promise. Amen. But right at the beginning of Genesis, you have Adam and Eve, and they're living in absolute perfection, and they're told, you can do anything you want, just don't eat that tree. And just like any six-year-old, they went right to the tree. And the enemy convinced them, Satan convinced them that eating of the tree would be a great idea. He's a liar then, and he's a liar now. It's a terrible idea. And God has to lay out, this is now the consequence of you letting sin enter creation. This is the consequence. And so in, in Genesis 3, we're not going to read it today, but if you wanted to spend some time reading it, it's fascinating. But in Genesis 3.14, uh, it lists a number of consequences, and it talks about how there's going to be broken relationships between humanity. There's going to be broken relationships. There's not going to be healthy relationships. You're going to compete with one another. You're going to be envious of one another. It's going to be difficult. Your relationship with God is going to be strained. The provision and resources is going to be limited. Life is going to be tough and unfair. There's going to be sickness and death. But at that moment, there's also a promise that's given to Adam and Eve that is true then and it's true now. And essentially, let me paraphrase, it's that Satan, Jesus is going to kick your head in. It says his heel is going to crush your head. I love the idea of Jesus giving Satan a roundhouse kick to the chops. But that's the, we can clap for that, that's fine. But that is the problem of the Old Testament. But I do want to read this verse to you regarding this nature, the idea of sin coming in from Romans 5. Yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone. But Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and new life for everyone. Because one person disobeyed God, many people became sinners. But because one other person obeyed God, many will be made righteous. There's one of, the, uh, one of the things that I think churches do in hopes of reaching people, in hopes of letting people see the love of God, is they minimize the problem of sin. And I have no desire for people to leave church feeling guilty and feeling beaten up and feeling like they've been judged by a whole bunch of people that are hypocrites and pretending that they've got their life together. I have no desire to be a part of a church like that and I'm relieved to say that we are not a church like that. But if we minimize the problem of sin, we minimize the promise of who Jesus is. If we minimize and if we ignore the fact that it is because of sin, it is because of evil, that there is a distant relationship between God and humanity, then we won't look to Jesus' overcoming of sin as a solution to that problem. If we don't think about sin as the problem that, you know, the, between people and the relationships are strained and fractured and there's backbiting and envy and all these kind of things, then if we don't look to overcome sin... We don't look to Jesus to help get us through that and break us free from sin. So instead of caring about the promise that he came to bring freedom from sin, instead we just keep going around and around the problem. If we don't call it out, we don't care about it. And if we minimize it, we minimize what Jesus did on the cross to bring freedom. I don't believe that the key to revival is to talk about sin less. I think it is to talk about sin, and just as much as we talk about sin, we talk about the grace and the love of God that can bring freedom from sin once and for all, no matter what label you put on it. It doesn't matter what type of sin we're talking about. God can bring freedom from it. This is a promise that I believe Isaiah was talking about, that he is able to bring that freedom.
We don't preach against sin to bring guilt, but to bring grace. Amen? Amen. Second problem. Second problem that Jesus came to fix. Sorrows and brokenness. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. He was beaten so we could be whole. I spent some time this week, and I'm certainly not going to pretend to you that I'm an expert in the Hebrew language. Uh, they told us in Bible college that when you're learning Hebrew, the first 11 years are the hardest. But I did, uh, I do have, uh, you know, there's a website that I use. You're able to go up and kind of do some very, um, you know, surface research on this. And what I was able to find looking up some of the Hebrew words that Isaiah uses is that this really does mean anything that weighs you down, any emotional heavy weight. Anything that sort of you know, weighs heavy on your shoulders that causes to bring you down, this really is anything. And one thing that uh, I found over the last few years that's been helpful for me is uh, certainly not every day, but maybe once a week or maybe you know, every other couple of weeks, I'll sit down in the morning and I'll just get my journal and I'll just put at the top of the page what's on my mind. And I'll just write out, these are the things that you know, I write down, and the things that I write down are the same things that any one of us would write down, you know, whether it's a financial problem or a relationship problem or something that's causing stress or something that's just you know, annoying or something I'm concerned about with the kids, whatever it is, but just writing it out. And it's amazing just that simple practice of writing it out. It just gives me something to pray through. Maybe it'll sort of give me something that I need to talk to Megan about, but just writing it out just helps to bring this perspective. And we talked a lot about this stuff last week, and so I don't want to repeat myself, but... I want to have the confidence in God that I believe we should. I want to, if I look at my list of the things that I've had to write down, I want to have the confidence of God, you're over this. God, God, you're able to work in this. God, you're able to do something with that. I want to have that kind of confidence in him. Because at the end of the day, the the savior that we proclaim as being Lord of our lives, when there was a storm in the boat, he was asleep. And if the disciples hadn't woken him up, he would have kept sleeping. And if that's the confidence that he has, I want to have likewise. No matter the shape, no matter the size of the storm, I want to have the confidence that he is able to do it. So I don't want to repeat last week, but I did believe it's important to point back to that, that he came for sorrows and brokenness. Those emotional things, those things that weigh us down, that stress us out, the pressures that we feel, they're very real But the promise is that he came to alleviate those, to lift those off of our shoulders. And he is able to bring a peace that surpasses any logic, any understanding, any common sense. He is able. And the third thing, problems that Jesus came to fix, weakness and sickness. And this is a very well-known passage from Isaiah 53 that, yet it was our weaknesses he carried. He was whipped so we could be healed. And I'm always extremely cautious whenever we talk about uh, healing and supernatural healing. I want to do this with a great deal of sensitivity because the church, the size that we are, it's inevitable. But I can even say that I've heard reports from different people in the congregation over the past couple of weeks. I know that there are people that are here and people that are listening online and in church. We talk about healing. You may have got a bad report from a doctor recently. There may have been something that you've been fighting for months maybe even years. There are prayer requests that you've had and you haven't seen a miraculous healing. You may have suffered the loss of a loved one recently and I wanna navigate this with extreme sensitivity because I don't want you leaving church today feeling like you've been beaten up. I want you to feel full of hope and feel of confidence that Jesus is who he says he is. So I wanna be sensitive and I wanna honor that there are people here and this is a difficult thing for you to hear as we talk about the nature of healing.
We talk about God working supernaturally. I'm going to make a statement, and then I'm going to explain it a little further. The best and the worst can both point us to eternity. The best and the worst can both point us to eternity. And it's important, to, I think, for every believer to remember that when we look at the creation, we talked about it very briefly with Adam and Eve and the perfection that God intended and how humanity was hardwired. There was never an intention that we would have to deal with the loss of a loved one. We're not hardwired that way. That's why when something traumatic happens, it feels so foreign to us and so alien to us. We're not hardwired to deal with it. We're hardwired, when God put humanity together and God breathed life into Adam and Eve, the intention was is that we would live forever. This is, this is life, no death, no pain, no sorrow. And so when trauma happens and grief happens, it's so alien and so foreign to us. And it pulls out this feeling in us that it shouldn't be this way. When we have lost a loved one, and we listen and we talk it out and we try to sort of talk through with people and this feeling of it shouldn't be this way is a completely correct thing to say. I, I, I shouldn't feel this. I'm not designed to feel this way. If we were all just evolving, surely we would have got over this by now. But we haven't. Because we're hardwired for relationship, we're hardwired for community, we're hardwired to love each other and be loved in return, and when that's broken, it feels so foreign and so alien because that's never how the Lord knitted us together. And if you speak to the experts, and I certainly don't pretend to be one, but if you speak to a counselor, therapist, or psychologist, they'll say that in the middle of grief, and as, as grief happens, it, it's completely appropriate and even important that you just ride out the emotions without feeling this pressure of you've got to get it together. And you just ride out these emotions, but there, there does come a point when people are ready to start piecing life back together. I know there's many people here today that you know exactly what I'm talking about, where it, it, it's time to start putting one foot in front of the other again. And when that comes, having eternal perspective is important. Having the perspective that it shouldn't be like this, and one day it won't be, is important. It's important. So if you're here right now, I, I hope that this was done with love and sensitivity. If, if you're in the middle of a frustration and the idea of talking about supernatural healing is, is something that can be very upsetting for you, I want to encourage you. It shouldn't be this way. And one day it won't be. One day it won't be. Conversely, I have prayed for people in the past that have been miraculously healed. Petitioned God and said, God, can you please do a miraculous work? And I've seen people get healed. And when that happens, that also points to eternity. If you look at Leviticus 23, it talks about a, a specific type of offering it talks about the first fruits offering. And the first fruits offering could be a sheaf of wheat, it could have been a meat, it could have been a loaf of bread, it could have been some dough. And what would happen is, is that when it's harvest time or when it's time to you know, do the new batch, whatever it may be, you'd bring the first portion to the tabernacle or the temple and either the person bringing it or a priest would wave it in front of the Lord. 
And it was symbolic of this is the first. If you've got like a sheaf of wheat and you're waving it towards the Lord, everyone can see that this is being dedicated. This is the first. And it's representative of a whole field of harvest that's still to come. Every healing, every healing, every time that you or I will pray for somebody and God comes through in a miraculous way, in a way that confuses doctors, it is an offering, it is a first fruits offering of one day, there's gonna be so much more of this we won't even be able to keep count. This right here, this representative of Lord, this I'm offering to you, this first fruit, every healing is a first fruit offering, indicating just like there's a whole field of harvest behind you, in front of us there is a whole field of healing and wholeness and health into eternity. That is what is represented every single miracle that you and I get to be a part of here. It is indicative of all that is to come where there is no more sickness, there is no more pain, there is no more death. It is indicative, it is representative. Every single healing that you and I can experience, every time we get to experience on earth as it is in heaven, it is representative that one day that is gonna happen in its fullness when Christ returns, wraps this whole thing up, there is gonna be complete and utter health, healing, and wholeness. And we get to see just a smidge of what that means, just like that one sheaf of wheat was a smidge of the whole field of harvest. It is just a glimpse of the goodness of God as we think about eternity. The best and the worst can both point us to eternity. I believe we're a church. If someone's sick, we're gonna pray. And we're gonna believe that God's gonna do the miraculous. We're gonna believe with you on earth as it is in heaven. And we're also gonna be a church that is deeply rich in compassion for the people that are hurting, amen? Amen. Revelation 21, starting verse three. We've talked a little about Genesis right at the very beginning, right at the very end. This is talking about the eternity that we get to step into as believers. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. We talked about rebellion and sin. That's what Isaiah pointed to is what the Messiah would come to fix and how it's rebellion and sin that has broken the relationship between God and humanity. Well, we just read in Revelation that God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people, that that relationship has been healed and is restored. We talked about sorrows and brokenness. And from Revelation, we just read, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. We talked about weakness and sickness, that death and pain are gone forever. There will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. And for you and I, when we encounter these things in our life, when we see these problems, Let's have a perspective that the Lord promised he's gonna get involved in this. He's gonna get involved. An eternal perspective of, you know what, one day I'm not gonna have to deal with this. One day it's not gonna be like this. It shouldn't be like this and one day it won't be. When the problems come up, let's seek the promises that are fulfilled in Christ. Let's seek him more and believe that we are gonna start seeing on earth 
as it is in heaven. Uh, I've got a couple of questions for you, and maybe you'll have a chance this week to think about this, and perhaps even helpful to talk through with a spouse. The first thing I wrote down is, what problems need a promise? What problems need a promise? We've covered a lot of ground today, but maybe there's a sin that you're ready to be done with because you've seen the destruction that it caused. Maybe there's an addiction that you're finally ready to reach out and get help so someone can help you take a steps into freedom that can, I really believe can only be found in Jesus. Maybe it's the difficulty and the weight and the stress and the frustration and the angst of life. Maybe even trying to fix it all by yourself and you're finally ready to say, Lord, I need you to help me figure this stuff out. Maybe you're facing a sickness right now and you need the church to gather around and pray with boldness for supernatural healing. Maybe you've stopped looking forward because you've minimized the problem in life. And so you've minimized how desperately you need this promise from Jesus to be active in your life. Second question. First one was what promise, uh, problems need a promise. The second question, where do you need peace? Where do you need peace? If someone were to ask me what's your favorite thing about being a Christian, I would just say peace. Not because my life is without any stressful things, but just because he's able to bring a peace that I couldn't describe and neither could you. He's able to bring a peace. Where do you need peace? Maybe my trick of writing stuff down and giving you something to pray through and something to talk about with someone you trust may be helpful. But where do you need peace? Where do you need him to start carrying some of the burdens? Well, the verse we read on that sort of gave us those problems that the Messiah came to fix, it was from that third of five verses or stanzas in that servant song, in that song from Isaiah 53. And the last verse we haven't read yet, but Isaiah 53, 6, all of us, like sheep, have gone uh, straight away. We have left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. We have left God's paths to follow our own. We have left God's paths to follow our own. And that is the root of all the problems we've ever faced. Is that we, humanity, starting with Adam, as we read about, that one act, let sin enter creation. And ever since then, we've been abandoning God's path to follow our own. Fast forward 700 years, 2,000 years ago, Jesus would get up and teach in Matthew 7 about two paths. The one that's wide and broad and easy, that leads to destruction, that leads to an eternity separated from God, an eternity in hell that I hate thinking about, an eternity that I find completely horrifying And Jesus didn't pull any punches. This is the path you're on. But I'm going to make it possible for you to take another path. I'm going to make it possible for you to get back on God's path, which you could never, ever do by yourself. There's a highway. It's going to an eternity you and I do not want. But 
I'm going to make an off-ramp. I'm going to give you the chance to get off that highway and get onto the path that leads to life, that leads to the promises that are only fulfilled in Jesus. That's an eternal perspective I want to have. But you may be here today and I, I don't know your story. I don't know the problems you're facing right now. I don't know the struggles you're in the middle of. I don't know the fights that you're fighting. I, I don't know your story. I don't know how you ended up in church here today. I don't know how you ended up in church online today, but you're here and you heard this message. You heard about a savior that is more incredible than I could ever describe. And maybe this is the first time that you've got to the point of, you know what, that problem of being separated from God, that's me. And I wanna take the off ramp. Maybe you're at that point today. So I wanna invite everyone here and at home, I want you to join in, but if you just close your eyes and bow your heads, just give people a chance to focus on what really matters right now without any distractions. But if you'd be honest and brave enough today to say, you know what? I'm on my own path. I'm away from God. My relationship with Him is broken. But I want it healed. I want to take the off-ramp. I want to follow Jesus. I want to make Him Lord of my life. I'm done doing it my own way. I'm ready to start living with Him. If that's you today, I'd love to pray. And I promise we're not gonna embarrass you, we're not gonna get you to do anything weird or uncomfortable, but I'd love to know who I'm praying for when we pray in just a moment. So if that's you today, could you just put your hand in the air just so I know who we're praying for? Amen, anybody else here, thank you. Amen, anybody else? At home, you can just click the button that says, I raise my hand, amen. If you're in the room, just put your hand up just so I know who I'm praying for when we pray in just a moment. Amen. I don't want to make this uncomfortable, but I don't want to close too soon. Is there anyone else that you'd say, Tom, you know what? I want to follow God. I'm ready. Anybody else here today? Amen. Come on, Word of Life. Let's celebrate people making the greatest decision. It's 17 years ago now that I made the decision to follow Jesus. And life's had ups, it's had downs, but I've never once regretted that decision. We're gonna pray a prayer together and I believe from my own experience and listening to many other people, you pray a prayer like this, believing, full of faith, that this has the power to change your life, things start to look a lot different after you pray a prayer like this. So come on everybody, the words are gonna be on the screen. I'm gonna say a line and I invite you to say a line after me. So come on, Lord Jesus, I believe you died for me. I want to follow you. I invite you to be Lord of my life. Help me follow you every day. I want to leave my old life of sin behind and heal my broken relationship with God. In Jesus' name, amen. Come on, one more time, let's celebrate people finding God today. Well, come on, let's go ahead. Let's welcome Leslie and Aaron back as they come and help you figure out what a good next step for you might be.